turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8. Now, you probably uh, at some point figured out that electricity has completely revolutionized your life, right? Um, I kind of knew that electricity had an important role in my life, but it really became crystal clear. I was doing a project, 1985, in school, and uh, what I did is I interviewed my grandfather, and the project was to contrast his day, a day in his life, and a day uh, in my life at that time. For my grandfather, he uh, was uh, working on a ranch in northern Montana. Um, we're talking rural, middle of nowhere. His life was, I mean, talk about hard. I mean, they had, you know, kerosene lamps, lanterns. They had to wash their clothes with a scrub board. Uh, they would go and they would cut ice out of a river, and they'd put it in their ice house and their ice box. And so in winter in Montana, up there in northern Montana, that's about 10 and a half months out of the year, okay? And so it was just a tough existence. My life, when I'd compare it, it's like, I mean, electricity had everything to do with my life. I had this cool stereo deal that had a clock in it that I could actually set an alarm to, and so it would jolt me out of bed. I'm sure my parents and my brothers all appreciated that, and yet make sure I made it to morning practice. And electricity had everything to do with my life, anything from refrigeration to microwaves, washing machine and dryers. Not like I had a lot of experience with that, but my mom did, and that made her life a lot easier. And, I mean, all the way to the time when I turn off my reading lamp light at the end, electricity had something to do with it. And if you think about how prevalent electricity is and how much it has changed our lives, you begin to think, how much more does God's presence empower us and change us? And we hear that, and we would resonate with that, and yeah, we, okay, yeah, I'm kind of tracking with you. But it especially becomes a, a key thought for us when we encounter problems, troubles, and trials. How does God's Spirit, the presence of Christ, really help us when we're facing real need? Well, I hope you got your Bibles open to Romans chapter 8, because this is just a glorious text, and it just spells out the power of Christ's presence. First thing you need to know is that the, the presence of Christ, it actually, He actually strengthens us, strengthens us by his spirit. Let me just remind you of a glorious truth. In Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 9, if you want to know who are the Christians, verse 9 in Romans chapter 8 and following tells us. He says, however, you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. You're not in Adam. You're not living in life in rebellion to God. You are not following the inclinations that are so pervasive in our flesh that is B.C., before Christ. But when you trust in Christ, you're not in the flesh, you are in the Spirit. Look at this. If indeed, the Spirit of God dwells in you. The Christian, what makes you a Christian is not that you follow a Christian ethic or try to adopt Christian morality or set some rules in front of you or that you show up at a church. What makes you a Christian is that the Spirit of God literally dwells within you. He says, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ... He does not belong to him. And look at verse 10. If Christ is where? Where does Christ reside? Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Think of that. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead literally dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So God's spirit 
dwells in the lives of his people. And when you come to chapter 8, verse 26, you're going to see one of the major works of the Spirit of God, that he actually strengthens us. Look what he says. It says, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. And we're weak, right? Physically, emotionally, mentally. Sometimes we even have just complete mental breakdowns, even spiritually. But notice that God helps us in our weakness through the Spirit. He says, for we do not know, verse 26, how, we, how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the, word, the will of God. So we looked at this last week, but it is such a glorious truth that God's Spirit actually enters into our weaknesses and our suffering. And it's like the curtains are pulled back for just a second and we see this unseen spiritual realm where the Spirit of God is literally interceding, praying that you and I will continue to grow and manifest the character and the maturity of Christ. And he is always praying. And so what we're seeing out there is these divine appeals for our spiritual welfare. Remember Jesus in John 14, Upper Room Discourse, he said, listen, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. He is a comforter. He is an advocate. He is a teacher. He's the paraclete. He is going to come alongside you. And Romans 8, 26 and 27 says that the Spirit of God is actually praying for us. You need to know that God loves us even more than we love ourselves, and he is groaning with groanings too deep for words. The believer isn't. This isn't some sort of gibberish, charismatic type idea of like some sort of angelic language. It's the Spirit of God who is appealing and to, to the Father for our well-being. That tells us that you and I are never alone. We might feel alone. We might feel isolated. You can even be in a crowd and feel alone. You need to know the Spirit of God is interceding for you, even now. So just think about this past week, some of the things that you were involved in, events that took place in your life, the difficulties, the good things. Do you know that the Spirit of God was interceding on your behalf, that the fullness of maturity of Christ would be demonstrated in you? So when you look at the power of the presence of Christ, you see, first of all, that he strengthens us with the Spirit. But let me show you something else. He is also shaping us in his image. Look at verse 28. I can't tell you how many different people told me that, man, you got to my favorite verse in the Bible, okay? Romans 8, 28. And since you liked it so much, I'm going to preach on it again, okay? Because the, I'll tell you why this is one of the most favorite verses of the Bible, because it is perhaps the strongest promise. Every Christian ought to memorize Romans 8, 28. Look what it says. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, he doesn't say that all things are good, does he? No. In fact, a lot of what's going on in life, our life, what? Is bad, sinful. We face suffering. We go through persecution. We've, we've got pain. We've got health issues. At times, we lack faith. We have a lot of things that are not good. In fact, we live in a world that could be categorized as difficulty and pain and 
heartache and death and sickness and disease and deterioration and decay. But God says, I'm going to work all things together for good. That includes your suffering. Your suffering is not futile. Ultimately, it's not tragic because God is going to work it together for his good. He's sovereign even over our suffering. Now, when we hear the word good, we're like, oh, awesome. God's going to work all things together for good, my good. And what would be good? Good would be like I had more money, more prestige, a better job, a nicer house, a cooler ride. I mean, good would be that I'd have better relationships, that people would recognize just how wonderful a person I am. And what we do is we start, we kind of put in our head what we think is good, right? And so people think like, God's going to work it all out for me, for my glory. Like, I'm going to be awesome or it's going to work out perfectly. But is that what the text says? What is good? What is the good that God is working all things toward? Well, one of the fundamental principles of how you interpret Scripture is let context be your guide. And actually, in verse 29, he tells us what that good is. He says, verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to, and this is the good, to become conformed to the image of his Son. What is absolutely best is that you and I are conformed to the image of Christ, that we manifest his likeness. And so what this text is telling us in the midst of our heartbreak and tragedy and disappointment and bereavement and sadness and our sufferings, even the good things in our life, joys, unexpected blessings, God says, I'm working all things together for good. I am literally forming and fashioning the image of Christ in you, that you will reflect his character, his morality, his likeness, his light, and his love. That's what's going on. So when you think about what's going on in your life, and I know some of you are dealing with some serious issues, hardship, serious stress, financial problems, health issues, major concern, a loved one that's passed away, God is seeking to develop these things in our life for your good. And you need to know that your life isn't controlled by some sort of impersonal force like chance or luck or fate. You know, you hear this. Don't tell someone this. Well, accidents just happen. Drunk drivers, they just drive drunk. Things are going to happen that way. Bad things are just kind of beyond God's control. First of all, when you tell people that, first of all, it's not true. Second of all, it's not helpful. God says, I am going to work all these things together for your good. Sometimes we think like, oh man, I didn't get into the grad school that I wanted to get into. But you know what that means? God's got a better school for me. Or I didn't, I wanted that gal to marry me or if you're a gal, that that guy to marry me, but it didn't work out. They they didn't like me, which was really surprising, you know? I mean, I really like myself. I can't see why they didn't like me. God has someone better in store, right? And he might he may work that way. But that's not what this text is promising. He's not saying that you're going to have better circumstances in life. He's saying you're going to have a better life because I'm going to fashion and form the character of Christ in you. I'm literally going to shape you into my image. And so you need to know that even your suffering and the difficulties you face, they are being used by God to make you more like his son. And that means that whatever God will cause or ordain or permit, 
in this fallen world, among all these fallen people, God is using to shape you, to make you like Christ. Now, the supreme example of this is Christ himself when he goes to the cross. For Satan, it was the ultimate expression of evil. I will literally put to death death the incarnated Son of God, and I will humiliate him. I will have him beat, whipped, mocked, and crucified. Ultimate destruction. But God, what? God takes that same event, and he makes the most glorious truth that we'll celebrate for all eternity. I will redeem my people through that act where the son willingly puts himself through it and endures God's just wrath against sin so that eternal blessing comes to his people. That is our God. So is this promise for everybody that God works all things together for good? Actually not. It's for a particular people. Look what the text says. He works all things together for good to who? For, to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. God works it together for good to those who love God, i.e. the Christian, the one who has a heart that is committed to God, that reveres God, that loves God. There's an affection for God. There is a joy that comes, a, a, a pleasing thought that you love to be in his presence because you love him. You don't like just the blessings that he gives. You literally, and the flip side of that, he says in verse 28, is that you are called according to his purpose. God has summoned you. It's not just that you've heard about Christ, but that you've actually responded to the gospel, that you believe in Christ, that he has drawn you to himself, and he's given you salvation. And what you're going to find is Romans 8.28 is absolutely true for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And you know, when we pass from this life into the life of the come, guess what? We're going to see this absolutely crystal clear. Like, whoa, God, you used all those events, all that painful, oh, that was so hard. That was difficult. That's why that happened? You used this to shape me and make me like your son. That is what we're going to know. We already know it because of verse 28. It's in our Bibles. That's why you got it starred and underlined. Let's live with that perspective. Everything that's going on, think of it now as God is conforming me to the image of his son. And how serious is God about this? Well, look at verses 29 and 30. He says, for those whom he foreknew, okay? So if you have foreknowledge of something, what does that mean? You know beforehand, right? But this word is not just merely knowing like beforehand. The, the word know it, it, in the scriptures, it has the idea of intimately knowing, to knowing deeply, and he says, those whom he foreknew, God loves you even before time when you existed just in essence. You weren't corporal, you weren't bodily, but you were in essence, and he loved you, he foreknew you. So this word know, for instance, like if you look at the Old Testament, Genesis 4, chapter 4, verse 17, it talks about Cain had relations with his wife and she conceived. That word had relations is know, to know, yada, okay? It is to know deeply, intimately. Or like in Amos chapter 3, verse 2, where the Lord says to Israel, you only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. That word chosen is yada, to know. 
Among all the families of the earth, I have chosen you. I know you. So this foreknowledge speaks of a choosing, an intimate love acted upon by God to you. He says, for those whom I foreknew, look at this, he also predestined. And that word predestined means to mark out or appoint or determine beforehand. And God chooses and he destines those whom he's chosen for what? What is God doing? Well, we've already seen it, but look again now that you have a little bit better understanding of those words. He has predestined us to become conformed to the image of his son. You see that? God's eternal plan is that he was going to bring about a people who would experience redemption. It was foreknown, predestined, so that you and I would become conformed to the image of the Son of God, that we would literally be like him, that we would have uh, morals and morally be like him where we would be completely without sin and we would be glorified that we would actually have a body that would be incorruptible, that we would be like Christ in every respect. And so that doesn't mean that you're going to look like Jesus like facially, like, wow, we're all going to look alike. No, no. You're going to have individuality. Characteristics of what you like look like will be existence throughout all eternity. doesn't mean that you won't have personality because God shapes and weaves and forms all different types of personalities. But what it does mean is that we will manifest his likeness. He will, we will radiate his love. We will be like him. And the text says, this is what God has predestined. And he says, verse 29, so that he would be the firstborn among br- many brethren. The idea is that when you talk about the firstborn, it is to have the position of preeminence, the place of honor. You are the firstborn, the unique only one. Well, that's what he's speaking about when, for, when he talks about being the firstborn among many brethren. And so what he's pointing out here as we're looking in these verses is that God is eternally securing his people to accomplish his purpose, that you and I, we look like Jesus. And look at this, verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. He called, he called, he summoned them to salvation. And those whom he called, he also justified. And as we've gone through Romans, we know exactly what justified mean means. It means to be declared righteous. God legally declares you right by virtue of the fact of uniting us with his son and all the merits of Christ, the fact that he's perfect without sin, his perfect righteousness, it's transferred to our account. He always sees us in the son, never in our sin. We are declared righteous. He also justified and those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's really interesting. Glorified, you see that appears in the past tense, but yet we experience glory in the future. Do you know why it's written that way? Because it's as good as done. God who foreknew, who predestined, who called, it is as good as done. Glorification is settled for his people. And I'll tell you, why is he doing all this? He is doing this to shape you and to mold you to the image of his son. And that's what's going on in your life right now. Right now, life might be bumpy, abrasive, difficult, harsh, painful. You might be very discouraged. What is God doing? He is shaping you into the image of his son. He is the God who works all things together for good. So ask him, God, what is the good in this? What are you trying to do? Help me to understand how you are trying to conform me to the image of your son. What pride are you trying to strip away? How are you trying to make me more dependent upon prayer? How are you trying to manifest the fruit of the Holy Spirit in my life? What what are you teaching me about love? What are you teaching me about dependence, about prayer? God, how are you making me more like your son? 
Because that's what the presence of Christ does. He shapes us into his image. And then just one more thing that I, I want to point out to you of what God does through the presence of Christ. He not only strengthens us with his spirit, the spirit of God interceding on our behalf. He not only shapes us into the image of Christ, but he secures us with his love. And this is this final section here, beginning in verse 31, it's like this great hymn of eternal security. It's like these climactic declarations. After one question, he gives another answer. And it just overwhelms us with how much we are loved. And you know, friends, this is so critical that you actually understand how God really sees you, perceives you, and loves you. Don't you find in relationships, like how, someone, how you think someone thinks about you affects how you interface with them? So for instance, if you think someone is like angry with you or mad or despises you, how do you, how do you respond to that? The defensive shield goes up, right? We're like, mm, we're all nervous. We don't act right. We're, we're tentative. We don't want to engage. And why? Because we're perceiving, whether it's correct or not, that that person really doesn't like us. They maybe even hate us. And that relationship is tainted, if not completely broken. That is why you need to understand how much God loves you. There are a lot of folks that how their parents treated them, especially their fathers. Came from a pretty bad home. Maybe dad just hightailed it out of there. You got an image that, man, father, when I hear father and you tell me God's father, I think about my dad. That is a bad experience. That, that looked like beating. That looked like abandonment. That looked like pain. Ugh. But calling him father, it's associated with the word. Or maybe, you know, it's, it's kind of crazy what we do with our own minds, how much pressure, and we just pile it on, don't we? How bad we are. We run around thinking that we're miserable, and it's oftentimes self-induced. God wants you to understand how much he unconditionally loves you because you and I flourish in the context of unconditional love. And so look what he has to say. Verse 31, then what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? You're thinking, well, that's, that sounds good, but wait, I can think of some things against me. Satan seems to be against me, filling my mind with all sorts of weird thoughts, bad thoughts, and my conscience keeps condemning me. I, In fact, if I think about it, there are a lot of bad things in this world. And you start thinking about, like, Christians around the world, like in Pakistan and Iraq and Nigeria and... North Korea and Kenya? All the, wait, there's a lot of bad things that are going on. Hey, if I think about my own community, man, there's, there's like gangs and drug lords. And wait a second, and people are hauled off, these kids, they're hauled off into sex slavery. There's, there's a lot of evil going on. And maybe God isn't as much in control. Maybe he can't relate to our suffering. Wait, wait a second here, there's an Ebola virus. There's these natural disasters. Wait, there seems to be a lot against us. Look at what the text says. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? And if you ever want to understand, does God enter into the suffering of his people? Does God know? Can he conquer? Will we overwhelmingly conquer in him? You might want to put a mark by verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, 
how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Every time you encounter suffering, you think of the cross because God knows intimately about suffering. And he says, I will freely give you everything that you need. And it comes in Christ. It's kind of like, let's say you had a, have, a, have a dad and he's got a ton of money and he's like, man, I want you to know how much I love you, so I'm going to build you a really nice house. And he furnishes it and he says, here you go, here are the keys. And by the way, if there's anything else that you need, just ask me, I'll provide it. And if you find out like you need a toaster or an air filter or a doormat, do you think you could ask your dad who is benevolent, kind, loving, and loaded? Do you think you could ask him? And he would like, man, I'm glad you asked. Here you go. Our Heavenly Father wants you to know, I've given you salvation and I've given you Christ. And everything you need to mature, to grow, to experience peace, perspective, joy, I will give it to you. I will freely give you all of these things. And when he, didn't we see this, what he says there? He didn't actually withhold his own son. Okay, do you see that? That's kind of bringing back language that actually comes from Abraham. Remember he says where Abraham did not withhold his only son? God didn't withhold his only son, and he gave him in our, in our case. You need strength, perspective, whatever you need, God will provide it. He did not spare his own son, but delivered him for us, over us for all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Well, then look what he says in verse 33. Well, who will bring a charge against God's elect? You know, who's, who's going to actually bring accusations? Satan does. Our conscience does. There are people that say, you call yourself a Christian? You are sorry. Look at you. you you've sinned worse since you've been a Christian than before, and yet you call yourself one of the redeemed? I don't think so, right? Sound familiar? Those sort of little dialogues take place in your head? And what he's talking about here is forensic or legal language. Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect, his chosen people? Well, look at what he says, verse 33. God is the one who justifies. He acquits. He vindicates because Jesus' death accomplished justification. Or verse 34, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who could condemn you? No one can because Christ has accomplished the work of salvation and justification. It's like, I'll give you four reasons why you will never be condemned. You are not guilty even when you sin, even since you've placed your faith in Christ. I'll tell you, one, because of Christ's death, because of his resurrection, because of his ascension where he is seated at the right hand of the Father in the position of preeminent power. And four, did you see that? He is interceding for us. Not only is the Spirit of God interceding for us, but the Son himself, who loves you so intimately, he is praying for us on our behalf that we'd not only be conformed to his image, but that we would mature in Christ, that we would have strength, courage, joy in Christ in the midst of our difficulties. And notice what he says in verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. And when he's saying these things, there's something you need to know. For Paul, this wasn't just like theory. Well, God's for us. No one can be against us. Nothing. Pain, problems, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, being stripped down to nothing. We can't even afford to have clothes. No, for Paul, this was real. 
This is his testimony. He's not speaking from like, well, I, I heard these things. He's speaking from these things. I've lived these things. Nothing. You see that verse 35 will separate us from the love of Christ. It's not tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. Because verse 36, just as it is written, and he's quoting from Psalm 44, verse 22, for your sake, for your sake, Lord, we're being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. He's saying we actually, God's, we are part of God's people, and God's people have always faced hardship and difficulty. You're, if you are following Christ, that means you're going against the current of culture. You want to probably pray for our kids that are in school. Walking with Christ in today's culture at school, pretty difficult. Whether you be in middle school, high school, college, I mean, you're going against the tide when you say, I'm following Jesus, and everything around you is just going down the drain. For the people that are representing Christ, you might even be the only Christian on the force where you work. It is difficult. You, you might take some heat. For good reason that I believe the Spirit of God had him write these words to the Romans. Paul is writing from Corinth, writing in the winter. In just a few years, Christians at this point right now are tolerated. You know, the, the pagan government that's, that's in power, Rome, they think they're some sort of sect of Judaism, not quite sure about who they are. But in a few years, that's all going to change. And pretty soon, the blood of Christians is going to start soaking the sand of amphitheaters, where they're going to be torn by beasts, mauled and ripped apart by gladiators. Nero himself will set fire to Rome, and he will blame this new sect in the empire, these Christians, as the one who did it. And he will take the bodies of these living Christians, and he's going to cover them with tar and pitch, and he's going to hoist them onto poles and light them on fire so that they will light up his garden parties. And for a, hundred, a couple hundred years, it is going to be absolutely vicious. And when you face pain, heartache, hardship, and you're really being persecuted for your faith, your faith in Christ, you need to know that God loves you and he's going to accomplish his purposes. And so he ends in verse 38. He says, for I am convinced. Are you? Paul says, I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, kind of speaking of uh, the stars, whether they're at their zenith, at their highest point, or at their lowest, or maybe encompassing all of space, nothing, look what he says, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be. You may come to a time in your life, and maybe there's a few folks that you might be in this, where you simply can't sense God's presence. There's been multiple people in our church over the years where I've, I've met with and counseled. And it's like, what is going on? I have found that they're generally mature Christians. Um, in one case, it was a lady who had a very significant prayer life, could pray for like two hours a day for our church, for me, all the things that are going on. And they're like, Grant, what is going on? I, I can't sense God's presence. And they may be going through some pretty significant even trials as they're going through this. I want you to know that that experience is recorded multiple times in scriptures. Like in the Psalms, Psalm 13, Psalm 88, they're literally the sons of Korah or David are crying out, God, where are you? Because I can't see you nor I can feel you. I, I cannot sense your presence. I will tell you that this will last only for a season. 
But the ultimate expression of faith is that you trust God even when you can't sense his presence. I believe God is greatly glorified. It, it once again indicates that it is the power and the presence of Christ that's literally changing your life and you hold on to him. Singer and songwriter and author Jennifer Rothschild, she shares her story of, of what it looked like and how she's come to terms with the fact that she was born seeing, but then she had a disease where her retinas were literally eaten away and she went from seeing to progressively coming to a place where she is completely blind and can't see anything. And it, it's a fascinating article. I wish I could read the whole thing to you, but I, I want to read this ex- excerpt for you. One of the hardest lessons I've had to learn is that God uses painful circumstances in our lives for good. My hero, Johnny Erickson Tata, who has been in a wheelchair since she was a teenager, makes this point well when she says that God allows what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves. I know that God's heart is broken when he sees our hearts break. I believe that just as Jesus wept at Lazarus' tomb, Jesus weeps when he sees us cry tears of loss. I'm convinced that God is well acquainted with the sorrow and struggles that I experience. Yet, at the same time, he loves me enough, and this is why I'm so loyal to him, to let me encounter sorrow, taste bitter emotions, and feel loss. He trusts me to be a good steward of that sorrow. He loves me enough to let me experience that pain so that he can accomplish something he loves, which for me has been a deeper character and a more eternal perspective. I am convinced that God's grace has sustained me. If healing were sufficient, God would have provided it. If deliverance were sufficient, God would have delivered me. But he has allowed me to live with blindness, yet live equally with the sufficiency of his grace And that grace shows up in different ways on different days. But whatever way it shows up, it has always been truly sufficient. And then she writes, or has, she says, and it's recorded, it may never be well with our circumstances, but through God's grace, it can always be well with our souls. And friends, we are never more alive than when we know that we are loved. And that's what God wants. He wants life for you and to be alive. And the trusting in the power of Christ's presence, it changes the lives of his people. And so what God wants you to know and believe is that you are deeply loved and nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for an amazing passage of Scripture. And Lord, for those who have come here today who have never truly trusted in Christ and they have encountered through your scripture just the depth of your love for your people. Will they just right now turn from sin and trust in Christ and just pray with me and say, God, I I turn from my self-centeredness and my sinful ways and I believe in Jesus who died for me. What amazing love. And I, I... I ask that you would just lead my life. Change me from the inside out, and like you've said, conform me to the image of your Son. And Father, for the rest of us, may we realize that this is your grand, eternal purpose, to bring us to a saving relationship with your Son, 
so that in every respect, in every relationship, at each time, we'd reflect his image. Would you continue to accomplish this work for your glory and our good? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.